these are the records of the heavens and the earth concerning their creation. At the time that the Lord God made the earth and the heavens, no shrub of the field had yet grown on the land, and no plant of the field had yet sprouted, for the Lord God had not made it to rain on the land, and there was no man to work the ground. But mist would come up from the earth and water all the ground. Then the Lord God formed the man out of the dust from the ground and breathed the breath of life into his nostrils. And the man became a living being. The Lord God planted a garden in Eden in the east and there he placed the man he had formed. The Lord God caused to grow out of the ground every tree pleasing in appearance and good for food, including the tree of life in the middle of the garden as well as the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. A river went out from Eden to water the garden. From there it divided and became the source of four rivers. The name of the first is Pishon, which flows through the entire land of Havilah, where there is gold. Gold from that land is pure. Bedelium and onyx are also there. The name of the second river is Gihon, which flows through the entire land of Cush. The name of the third river is Tigris, which runs east of Assyria. And the fourth river is the Euphrates. The Lord God took the man and placed him in the garden of Eden to work it and watch over it. And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day you eat from it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for the man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord God formed out of the ground every wild animal and every bird of the sky and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called a living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all the livestock, to the birds of the sky and to every wild animal. But for the man, no helper was found corresponding to him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to come over the man, and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the flesh at that place. Then the Lord God made the rib he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one, at last, is bone of my bone and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman, for she was taken from man. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife, and they become one flesh. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Today begins another telling of the description that we've studied for the last four weeks. Some have highlighted the differences between this telling of creation and the one that we saw in chapter 1. And when they look at the difference between the stories, they conclude, since these tellings are different, they must both be fantasy, and we can't believe either one. However, 
I've come to believe that a different perspective doesn't necessarily mean my perspective is wrong or false or fantasy. When I go to a sporting event, I'm usually seated in the nosebleed section. I forgot something. And as I'm seated in that nosebleed section, how many of you remember the Royals, the Royal Knights on Monday night? Back in the late 70s, those $4 nosebleed tickets could be had for $2. And on my father's pastor's salary, it was usually Monday night when we would go to the Royals games. But occasionally, I have been blessed with the opportunity to um, sit down on field level. And believe me, the experience on field level is quite different from the one in the view deck. And now, through the power of television we have the ability to actually see the field through the eyes of the players who may be wearing a helmet cam. Just because the view level, the field level, and the player's perspective are different does not mean that any of those perspectives are fictional. Today, we turn from two different tellings, from the first cosmic telling of creation to a second perspective that is very man-centered, a man-centered perspective, where we find that from man's perspective, man has an identity, Now, I wrote the outline for this message on Monday as I tried to practice what I preach. And I told you last week that we need to divide up our work and to do that day's work and then be thankful for what we accomplish and then we do the next day. So the task on Monday was to come up with the big story, the outline for this message. Then later in the week, on Thursday and on Saturday, I saw two perfect illustrations of man's identity. Today we are told by some that identity is fluid. That I can identify how I feel. But we must not find our identity in how we feel. We must always find our identity in how God sees us. Yesterday morning, I was watching a cooking show by a famous wife of an Oklahoma cattle rancher. And she was preparing something that she called cauliflower steaks. And I wanted to sing. One of these things is not like the other One of these things just doesn't belong. Can you tell me which thing is not like the other before the end of my song? Now, I don't have anything against cauliflower. I've eaten it smothered in cheese sauce. I've eaten it plain. I've had it steamed and I've eaten it roasted. I've eaten it raw. And I know some people use cauliflower to make rice or to mash it like potatoes. 
I have a friend who uses cauliflower to make pizza crust. But I have to draw the line when it is called steak. Perhaps I'm being too critical. I have nothing against cauliflower. I actually like it. But cauliflower is not steak. Can I get an amen? But similarly, I have nothing against this student athlete. I have no objections to him or it or she may prefer as a person. I have nothing against this person as a swimmer. He, she, it is no doubt better at swimming than I am. But I do have a problem with calling him, her, the fastest women's swimmer in the NC2A. If your identity is based upon personal feelings, your feelings will always be situational. How many times have you heard of a suicidal person whose view of self is not based upon reality? I have a nephew who shot, who was shot to death by his wife. I have a first cousin who stabbed to death his brother. I have a child whose feelings of worthlessness prompted an attempt on her own life. I don't deny that these feelings are real. But when we make situational decisions based upon our feelings, we miss the truth of how God sees us. My heart was filled with joy as I watched these ladies sing about grace, what it means to be covered by God's grace, what it means to view themselves in light of God's grace. Because when our identity is based upon the way that God sees us, it's no longer situational. We find stability when we can view ourselves as God sees us. I know people who view themselves as basically good. But right now, they are bound for a Christless eternity. I know people who are in Christ, who are covered by His grace, who are seated with Him in the heavenlies, who struggle with their feelings of inferiority. We must identify as God sees us. And today's text, we see Four verses, in today's four texts, we see three important things about the way that God sees us. The first thing that I find in the verses in front of us that talk about the way God sees us is that God sees us as capable of replication. In the first telling of creation, the cosmic view, we saw that the systems were all put in place. But in verse 4, we see the human view, and humans are not viewed as an inflexible system. As the result of some big bang that started, and this is just the way it is. 
Each human is put into a place and into a time. That's why the scripture says these are the generations of the heavens and the earth. How did we get here is a common philosophical query. But the Bible says humanity is not caused by some random mutations or impersonal systems. Generations that speak of beings who exist within space and time who reproduce or replicate temporal beings who may live in a different place and in a different time. This individuality sets us apart from all other created beings. I've noticed that if you look to the east of our building, you will find a collection of Bradford pear trees. And some of you may be able to identify which nursery supplied these trees. But could you identify the parent that produced that specific seedling or that cutting? See, trees are trees. But in the generations, you are a person with an identity in a particular place, in a particular time, who produces other human beings who are particular with an identity in a place and in a time. None of the other animals or items is identified by generations, unless you get into breeding like Hinks and Angus. They can tell you back generations where this steer came from. But God has made us to live in a time and place and to replicate others who will live in their time and their place. The second thing that I see about our, our identity is that God has designed us for relationship. Notice they were created. Look at that second part there. In the day that the Lord God made the earth. If you look at chapter 1, you'll see the name God. God, 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 God. But here in the second part of verse 4, you see the name Lord God. See, God has made us for relationship with our Creator. Up until this verse, the word for God in Genesis chapter 1 is the plain word for any deity. And the plural is used to identify him as the greatest God. But other religions may claim that their God is the greatest deity as well. But in this verse, that four-letter word Lord that begins to appear, and it appears throughout the rest of this chapter... This is the name Yahweh. The name Yahweh is added to Elohim because Yahweh is the name that God used to identify himself to Moses at the burning bush. Yahweh is the God who cut covenant with Abraham and promised him a land, a people, and a reputation to his descendants. 
Yahweh is the God who took notice of those descendants when they were in Egypt and he delivered them to the promised land. Yahweh is not just the great God. He is the God who relates with his chosen people. And so when we begin to talk about the generations of humans, we begin to realize that God has made each generation to relate with the relationship God, Yahweh. God, Yahweh is a God who wants a relationship with you today. He wants a relationship will, that will carry you into eternity through repentance and faith in the only Son of God, Jesus. God has made us different from a species of trees. We are generational. We replicate. God has made us different from the animals, for we relate with Yahweh God. And God has made us different because we are to reflect the image that God has imprinted upon us. See, we are formed, I see in verse 7. Much of the rest of creation, God said it and it happened, or he caused it to spring up. But we see this word in verse 7, that God formed the man from the dust of the earth. God had formed us to reflect him. And we begin to see his view of forming us when he creates us. Genesis chapter 2, if you look at verse 19, it says that God formed the first man. In verse 22, we read that he made the first woman. And in Psalm 139, verse 13, we read that he is involved in the formation of every human being. Because the psalmist writes, for you formed my inward parts. You knitted me together in my mother's womb. He may speak other items into creation, but he forms us. Some, some commentators see this forming of dust from the ground as a hint of man's value. Yeah, you're just made out of dirt. You're just formed together. However... The Hebrew word that is used three different times in Genesis chapter 2 for formed is the same word that describes the potter and his activity in Isaiah 29, 16. He is the potter, we are the clay. God is the one who forms us. He is the one who shapes us. I have a close friend who's a retired commander from the United States Navy. And what is he doing in retirement? He's learned to throw clay, to form from the clay of the earth. And I think that when this says that God formed of the dust, it's as a potter shapes clay, is a hint that God is giving to us a reflection of his ability. For when we work in the garden, we are a reflection of the God who made us. I've heard some of you mention in recent weeks about how anxious you are to get some plants into the soil. And as you transplant and weed 
and water and harvest in the upcoming months. I hope that you can remember that God shaped the earth to make it productive. And when you garden, and I appreciate those of you who share the produce, you are reflecting the ability that God has when you work the earth. Because God values man and identifies him as blessed, man then, in verse 8, puts him in a very prepared place. See, God transplanted this preferred man into an environment of a garden. And I have a brown thumb, so I know gardens don't just happen. Gardens are prepared, and they are worked, and they are formed. And, and, and a good gardener is intentional about the different plants. You know, we talked about if you see an apple on a tree, you know it's an apple tree. If you see a banana on a tree, you know you're no longer in Chase County. But you also know that that's a banana tree. Because a good gardener knows how all of the different varieties interact with one another. And God placed man into this environment, a garden. And this garden to the man was pleasant to the sight. There's nothing wrong with noticing the beauty of a setting sun. As the pastures begin to green in the next month, God wants you to notice the depth of blue in the sky and the richness of green in the grass. He wants you to notice the variety of the blossoms. And when that old brown tree puts on buds and those buds turn into luscious foliage and cool shade, remember, God made the trees and the plants to reflect beauty. God put man into this garden and he says, that's pleasant to the eye. As we rejoiced with the moisture last Friday that will aid in the change of the seasons, verses 10 through 14 focuses on the abundant water that makes this garden lush. But not only was it pleasant to the sight, it was also good for food. For those trees did provide. The trees provided food and it provided a choice. It required discernment. It, it required the ability to look and to choose. With so much to choose from, Adam had to exercise discernment in which fruits to eat and which ones to just watch. Because there are some fruits that look beautiful on the tree, but to eat, not so much. He, he, he learned the difference between an orange and a grapefruit. You know, I, I've looked at gardening. At, actually, I've looked at produce in the grocery store. And, and I've noticed that the radish, the beet, the turnip, and the carrot look very similar above ground. But the root tastes very different. So man had to discern, he had to choose which he would eat and which he would leave for the livestock. The beet and the tomato are both round and red, but they're not interchangeable. And man was permitted to work with each to choose to nourish his body. 
Some trees had yellow fruit, some had green fruit, some had red fruit. The tree of life was there, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. They were both examples of the variety of tree, and each tree serves a specific purpose. It provided food for the man, but it also required him to make choice. So we see that it provided choice, but the garden also required participation on the part of the man. In verse 15, we read that God placed man in the garden to tend it and to work it. Before woman, before sin, before sleep, man was given the task of working and keeping the garden that God had provided. Again, Just like the forming of the dust, this is God's invitation to reflect or to share in God-like activity. Not that we become gods, but God is a creator. God plants a garden. God forms the earth. And he invites us to participate with him in these God-like activities. Man had an identity. Man had a purpose, but what he didn't have was a partner. And God said it's not good for man to be alone. So we begin to see God's, par- God's planned partner for mankind. Now, we need to think about partner in terms of relationship. Because a helper is better than being alone, but a helper is not a servant. A helper is not someone to boss around, to do all the chores that you don't want to do. A helper is someone who helps make you better. 23 months ago, while many of us were living under stay-at-home orders, the Green Bay Packers, who seemed to be set at the position of quarterback, traded up from their spot at number 30, and they moved up to 26, where they then took Jordan Love out of Utah State. The drafting of Aaron Rodgers' heir apparent did not sit well with Mr. Rodgers. However, having competition in the quarterback's room, having a helper prompted Rodgers to work harder and to improve his own game. And when God gives you a helper, it's not someone to boss around. It's someone to challenge you to become a better you. The Chiefs this week just committed $2 million over the next year to have a helper who is unlikely to ever see the field behind Patrick Mahomes. But he's another set of eyes. He's an additional set of ideas. And he will be competition that spurs the starting quarterback to excellence. 
And having that other set of eyes, having that other set of ideas, having that someone who encourages you to be a better you are just a few of the reasons why it is not good for man to be alone. Man is intended to have a partner. And after God said, man, you shouldn't be alone, let's look for a partner, then actually God creates a parade of animals that walks in front of the man. After the declaration that man needs a helper, we see the parade of animals. And Adam supposedly saw several creatures within the horse family that could breed with each other, but not with him. He saw a few varieties of cattle that could breed with each other, but they weren't his helper. And I presume that he named the monkeys, the chimpanzees, and the gorillas. But notice the last phrase in verse 20. After looking at all of the animals that lived with each other, he says, but for Adam, there was not found a helper fit for him. After naming this parade of animals, the man realized he was missing something. Man was missing a suitable helper, someone who would make him a better man. See, God had enjoyed the fellowship of the Trinity in eternity past, but man was missing the fellowship with an equal. Man had God who was above him, man had animals who were below him, but he did not have an equal. So in verses 21 and 22, God creates a suitable creation. The helper that man needed would have to reflect the divine image that Adam possessed. If Adam was like God, an equal partner has to be like God. And since none of the animals were made in God's image, they were all deficient to be the help that he needed. Why do I say that our spouse become, needs to reflect God's image? It's because the noun that appears here for helper, it occurs 21 times in the Old Testament. And more than 60% of the times that the word helper appears, it refers to God's ability to come to the aid of his people. When God gives you a helper, it's someone who reflects Godness to come to your aid. See, Adam didn't only need a helper, he needed one, a helper who was fit for him, a suitable helper. And that's the word fit. This word fit indicates the aspect of mutual assistance or one who reflects him. It's the sense of a man and a woman complementing or completing one another. When I don't have enough mercy to deal with our children when they were at home, God gave me a partner who had a lot more mercy than I do. And when God needed someone who was going to be able to tow the line, God gave her a partner who could tow the line. And this, this helper who is suitable, this helper who is fit, is the helper who completes us as a reflection of God's image. You know, just as mankind is helpless to save himself until the appearance of the perfect God-man... Jesus with two natures. 
Adam needs a helper who both reflected God to him and truly understood him. Adam needed someone who reminded him of God, but someone who completes him or complements him. That's what it means to have a suitable creation. And any man who finds a woman who both truly understands him and reminds him of God, that's a blessed man. What we look for in a wife is not her appearance, it's not her cooking ability, it's not her ability to give children. The most important things that man should look for in a wife is, is does she make me better? And does she remind me of Almighty God? Unfortunately, too few men look for a woman who reminds him of God. It's too low on the priority list. And the more men who find this woman, and the more women who make this their priority, the lower the divorce rate will go in the church. When we look for the person that reminds us of God and the person who makes us better. At the risk of sounding old-fashioned, every man present, including those of you who are just entering into manhood, you need to hear God's verdict. It is not good for you to live without someone who makes you a better man. And every woman who is present, even those who are just entering into the fullness of womanhood, you need to know that your highest, not your only role, I'm not saying this is your only role, but your highest role is to understand, to compliment, and to remind others of God. Whether that's in the home, in the community, in the workplace, your highest role is to remind others of God. And brothers and sisters, we are not animals. Each of us has an identity that is formed by God. We have been appointed from our own heritage to this place and this time in order to move the next generation to become better men and women and more godly women. Our final song this morning is a song that we will cooperate with God in His purpose for us. It's number 300 and.